I'm going to become the Joker. Hey everyone, this is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this week's subscriber-only episode of Five to Four, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are talking about originalism. Despite its name, originalism is a fairly recent way of thinking about the Constitution. Its ascent was part of the conservative legal revolution of the 1970s and 80s. Ostensibly, the doctrine calls for interpreting the Constitution based on how it would have been publicly understood at the time of the founding. But as you'll hear, it has been used to provide cover for all manner of reactionary holdings in the years since, while liberals have largely accepted it as a coherent and good faith legal philosophy. This is Five to Four, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to Five to Four, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have decimated our civil liberties, like rent hikes are decimating our bank accounts. Mm. <laughs> I'm Peter. I'm here with Rhiannon. Hello. And Michael. Hey, everybody. How's everyone doing today? Well, you're on with two homeowners, so you know, yeah. we don't know. That's true. I don't have anything to say about this so-called rent hike. I don't know anything about it. Rent? What's that? Couldn't be me. <laughs> Not everyone knows suffering, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's do I'm practicing negotiating with my landlord. So, Re, uh, you be my landlord. Okay. Why are you hiking my rent 20%? I don't know. You can have it for free. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm feeling great. <laughs> You're ready. You got this, Peter. Thank you. <laughs> I fucking knew. I fucking knew I had it. <laughs> All right. We should make our Patreon subscriber listeners aware that Leon complains that <laughs> my metaphors are not funny enough. And he's like, you're funny. You should make the metaphors funny. And I want to be clear that I don't think the metaphors are supposed to be that funny. Yeah. It's just supposed to be a cutesy little metaphor. Yeah. Fuck bosses. Yeah. Leon's like yelling at me, like, be more funny. Like, yo, do a, do a flip, you know? Yeah. Juggle these balls for me, you know? Dance, monkey, dance. No. This isn't the circus, Leon, okay? No. Oh, yeah. Let me just think of 200 hilarious metaphors <laughs> all following the exact same structure uh, that could apply to the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court. Sure. <laughs> If I could do that, I would not be hosting a podcast. I would be uh, on a television show making $25 million a year, you know? I don't think that's how much writers make, no. Peter. No, no. Yes. I, meant, I meant that I would be like the second coming of Johnny Carson. That's oh, that. oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Today's episode, originalism. Ba, ba, ba. This one's a long time coming. We are going to cover what originalism is, where it came from, try to give you a good faith recounting of the arguments for it, and of course, discuss why it is so fucking stupid. That's right. <laughs> yep. I went deep into the scholarship for this one, as you both know. Maybe too deep, Peter. Yeah. Well, any amount of depth is a little too deep, <laughs> as I learned. <laughs> 
in our prep call for this episode, we have a prep call before we record every episode. And in our prep call, Michael and I were both concerned. Yeah. With the just the speed with which Peter was speaking. Yeah. Um, it was very, you know, like a, a beautiful mind, like everything swirling yeah. around him. And he got deep, folks. Yeah. Yeah. Remember in A Beautiful Mind when he's got like the imaginary federal agent? Yes. Mm -hmm. I had that guy, but it was Scalia. <laughs> it was Scalia in my room. <laughs> you know, I was researching this and there's like there are all these areas of originalism that I have never researched thoroughly. And I sort of had this instinctual vibe that they were just bullshit. Mm. And when I dove in, I sort of expected to be proven wrong, at least like in some areas. Right. Like sometimes we'll think that, oh, let's do this case for an episode. And then we read it and we're like, you know what? That's not too bad. Yeah. Like maybe we don't love it, but that's not bad enough that I would build an episode around it. Right. right. And I fully expected to sort of run into something similar here where it would turn out that like there are sensible arguments for some of the things that I thought didn't make sense at a glance. That's not what happened. No. <laughs> what actually happened is like I just turned my brain into mush reading the most <laughs> convoluted, incoherent, backwards reasoned bullshit. Mm -hmm. That you could ever fucking comprehend. Yeah. The scholarship consists primarily of non-historian lawyers cherry picking from history, like ignoring notable amounts of countervailing information. Right. And then like calling it a day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I don't want to go too deep right now. We'll get into it. But first, a definition, perhaps. Sure. A definition of originalism. Go ahead and lay that one on us. Originalism is the idea that our interpretation of the Constitution should be guided by the original intent or original understanding of the document. Uh, now, that can mean a lot of different things. In its most anodyne form, it can be fairly unobjectionable. Like, there are terms of art within the Constitution that don't mean today what they did at the time. The Constitution uses the term domestic violence a few times. And at the time, that meant, like, violent insurrection, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. No one argues that we should interpret the term to mean like intra-family violence just because that's what it means now, right? It meant something entirely different at the time. We interpret it with that in mind. Mm -hmm. Unobjectionable. Yeah. Right. But that's not what we mean, of course, when we say originalism. When we say originalism, we are referring to a specific school of legal thought that claims that judges must interpret and apply the Constitution the same way the founding generation would have, and any deviation from that framework is unacceptable and illegitimate. Mm -hmm. So originalism has been used to beat back more liberal interpretations of the 14th Amendment, for example. It's been used to limit equal protection, which impacts racial and gender discrimination and voting rights, to name a few things. It's been used to argue against protected liberties like the right to privacy. It's been used to... Limit the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been used to argue for the expansive individual right to bear arms. All of these sort of different arenas of the Constitution, it's been, in short, weaponized by conservatives across like an array of different issues over the last 50 years. Right. Yeah. Coming up next, destroying the administrative state. Right. Yes. So it's not just the idea that the original intent or the original meaning can be useful. It's the idea that they are the only legitimate means of interpreting the Constitution. Mm -hmm. right. Before we get into it, there is something else that's important to understand, which we'll also touch on a bit more uh, shortly. Originalism has at different times meant 
prioritizing the original intent of the Constitution, the original meaning, the original understanding. These are all different schools of originalist thought. But in recent years, the dominant strain of thinking on the right is that we should be focused on the original public meaning of the Constitution. Right. Mm -hmm. That's not the drafter's intent, but how the document would have been understood by citizens at the time. Right. Not the only form of originalism, but again, the most visible type among judges and academics right now. So like if I could quickly and simply state the basic process of doing originalism right now, it would be one, you look to the text of the Constitution. Uh If it's clear, you do what it says. Okay. But two, if it's not clear, if it's vague, you try to decipher the original public understanding. Boo. And do you know how you do that? You go to the amicus briefs from the Heritage Foundation, (laughs) from Americans for Prosperity. That's right. (laughs) We're joking about this, right? But this is kind of like what we're always talking about with conservative legal organizations being overrepresented in amicus briefs to the Supreme Court, all this dark money stuff behind their decision making, all of that. It's not like the, the judge is like in some library with like, all these fucking books stacked around him, like trying to determine the actual public meaning, right? They're just engaged in a hackish exercise. Yeah. So I think before we talk about like the arguments for and against, uh, we should talk about like the history of the academic idea of originalism, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's an important place to start because what is surprising to a lot of people, I think, who hear so much about originalism in the law or originalism, at least in constitutional interpretation, is that originalism is a relatively very new idea. Mm -hmm. So the word originalism being used to describe what we're familiar with today, what Peter just defined as originalism, that first use was in a legal journal in about 1980, so pretty recently in history. But there are other related terms and phrases like original meaning, original understanding that were used long before that, of course. Right. So that's because constitutional interpretation before the invention, really, of originalism as we know it today, constitutional interpretation was less formalized. There were a lot of different theories of how to interpret the Constitution, and often justices in the same opinion were using different methods of interpretation, you know, within the same majority opinion or dissenting opinion, right? I think you can say generally that Most people used at least some form of living constitutionalism. Remember, living constitutionalism means that the Constitution, at least to some degree, should be interpreted with the evolving standards of the modern era in which you're interpreting the Constitution. A lot of this discussion about what the drafters intended, what they meant by the words, a lot of this discussion comes up around the 14th Amendment. And just a reminder, the 14th Amendment guarantees equal protection of the law for all people, and it guarantees some due process rights. You can't have your life, liberty, or property taken away without due process of law. Yeah. And, you know, it gets invoked around the 14th Amendment in particular because, and we've talked about this before, this was one of the amendments that was passed in the wake of the Civil War that transformed the relationship between the federal government and the state governments, and really empowers Congress to prevent the states from 
violating your rights. Exactly. It says that they can't treat their citizens or their people unequally. It says that they can't violate your liberty without due process. And these are the foundations of a ton of Supreme Court decisions and laws, for that matter, that are treasured on the left. Roe v. Wade, the right to contraception, interracial marriage, gay rights, and on and on and on. And undoing these decisions and gutting these laws has been a core conservative goal since they've existed, right? As long as these cases have been in existence, the conservatives have wanted to overturn them, right? As long as the Voting Rights Act has existed, conservatives have wanted to repeal it or gut it. And originalism is the intellectual framework they've constructed in order to achieve those goals, right? So- There's also this phrase, original understanding, which again comes up in a discussion of what the 14th Amendment means in 1949 in an article called, Does the 14th Amendment Incorporate the Bill of Rights? The Original Understanding. In that article, the author, Charles Fairman, was exploring the meaning of the 14th Amendment at the time the amendment was adopted. But again, this still is not a proposed methodology for interpreting the Constitution. It was more of a novel exploration on the part of the author for just wondering about what the drafters intended when they drafted the 14th Amendment. Like, this was kind of a new research inquiry. What did the founders think this meant? But this isn't a new concept in legal studies, like Peter mentioned. You know, it's not a new idea that you would, at some points, you would certainly look at the contemporary understanding of the language used in a law or the Constitution, or that you might inquire what the original intent was of a policy or phraseology in a statute, right? It was just like a probably best viewed as a sort of guidepost or norm, the same way that like precedent is today. Exactly. Right. 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 I don't think stuff was as formalized back then, right? Right. There weren't these like rigid processes the way- Right. or at least ostensibly the way they are today. Right. Yeah, exactly. So these concepts, like we're saying, they start off as academic, but then the labels and these phrases, they do start to pop up in Supreme Court jurisprudence here and there in the 60s and 70s. So the first use of the phrase original meaning occurred in a dissent written by Justice Black in a case called Harper. That's a case about poll taxes in 1966. And the first time the phrase original meaning is used in a majority opinion is one written by Justice Powell in 1977. After that, the phrase original intentions was used in 1983 by Justice Berger. And then the first use of the word originalist, like as in an originalist interpretation of the Constitution, or this is an originalist opinion, that first use of the word originalist was in 1995 in Justice Scalia's dissenting opinion in Roper v. Simmons. I have to mention here that Justice Scalia is dissenting in Roper v. Simmons from the majority opinion, which said that executing juveniles was unconstitutional. So mm-hmm. Justice Scalia, the first time he uses the word. Time to bust out the word originalist. Right. When you hear the it. first time. Yes. <laughs> Trying to kill kids here. Right. The first time the he guns. uses the word originalist is in a dissenting opinion on this matter. Oh, my God. <laughs> So like Ree said, uh, you know, the term originalism first popped up in the 80s, even though, right, like the academic sort of thread predates that. Although while I was doing this, I just kept imagining like the 
Joaquin Phoenix, like I'm going to become the Joker meme, but it's like a yes. picture of Robert Bork that just says like, I'm going to become an originalist or whatever, <laughs> yes. right? Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> he looks very Joker. Yeah, he does. But so arguably the sort of founding academic text of originalism was this piece from 1971 called Neutral Principles and Some First Amendment Problems by one of our favorites, Robert Bork. Aha. If you're new to the podcast and you're not familiar with him, we did do an episode on him and his failed confirmation battle. Check it out. He's a real piece of shit. <laughs> That's right. So if you read his piece, there's an emphasis on text and history. It feels very familiar if you're familiar with originalist uh, academic work, but it's a lot less focused than modern originalist literature, right? There's discussion of founder's intent, which like, as Peter said, is no longer really the flavor of the day in conservative legal circles. And it sort of contemplates other non-textual sources of individual rights, which would be very out of place uh, in modern conservative legal thinking. A few years later, you have another pod favorite, all-time piece of shit, William Rehnquist, (laughs) who wrote a law review article criticizing living constitutionalism, which is the theory that the meaning of the constitution evolves as society does. So, you know, that are notions of like equality or liberty, you know, those evolve and those words exist in the constitution and the constitution provides protections for, for those things. And so, you know, as our understanding of liberty involves, so too should the protections of liberty uh, evolve that the constitution provides, right? That's right. living constitutionalism. That is what originalism is critiquing. Um, and, and so Rehnquist is writing this sort of broadside against living constitutionalism and implicitly endorsing this more static originalist approach. This is also while he's on the court, yeah. which is pretty wild. Yeah. Right? He's just like writing these like yeah. academic tomes while he's on the court. Like, how about you shut the fuck up and do your job? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Further proof that being a Supreme Court justice is the easiest job mm-hmm. ever. Right. And so then in the 80s, you have uh, Reagan's attorney general, Edwin Meese. He gives a speech before the American Bar Association making the case for originalism. And this is a big deal. In the speech, he says judges would regulate their decisions by the Constitution. And as its faithful guardians, the judges were, quote, expected to resist any political effort to depart from the literal provisions of the Constitution. The text of the document and the original intention of those who framed it would be the judicial standard in giving effect to the constitution. So this is again, very much like a, the founder's intent flavor of originalism. That's no longer in vogue, but uh, this is a big deal. And I think it's important, not just like the content of the speech and the setting in front of the American bar association, but who's giving it. We've mentioned Mies briefly once before in the first part of our two-part episode on Roe v. Wade. But he wasn't just some like random flunky in the Reagan administration. He was leading an aggressive political effort on behalf of the president. He was the attorney general and under his stewardship, the Department of Justice like had comprehensive, detailed constitutional positions that were like explicitly at odds with Supreme Court precedent right. on 
abortion, congressional power, federalism, affirmative action. Mm -hmm. And they pushed those positions in public. They pushed them in briefs to the court. Uh, they understood themselves as like engaged in a project to explicitly remake the court in legal jurisprudence. And this guy is giving like a seminal speech in the creation and popularization of originalism. Yeah. So we'll talk about this more later, but it's important to realize that like this isn't just an organic development, you know, in academia, right? This yes. is part of a right. broader political movement being pushed by a political appointee in the service of a political agenda. Right. Right. It goes from this like loose academic idea to a tighter academic theory and then like the official position of the United States government in the span of a decade. Right. Yes. Yeah. Like you said, Nice was a very important figure. I it was his job to tell Reagan what year it was every day. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> it's a big responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like I had mentioned earlier, there was a shift uh, throughout the 80s and 90s away from using the original intent of the founders to the original public understanding of the Constitution. This was something that was popularized by Scalia himself. This sort of new form of originalism comes after like a lot of critiques are leveled against the original intent approach from both the right and left. Now, the good faith argument for like this original public understanding idea is the Constitution was written for the people, so it should be interpreted how people at the time would have interpreted it, right? But this approach is also very useful to conservatives in a couple of ways. Yeah. First, Many of the prominent founding fathers had some pretty progressive ideals for their time, right? Several were very opposed to organized religion. Some even wrote against a static interpretation of the Constitution, like Thomas Jefferson very famously wrote that he believes the meaning of laws and, and the Constitution should evolve. Right. If you're going by the original public understanding, it allows you to sort of pull from all sorts of different sources, right? Right, mm -hmm. which allows for a level of cherry picking that is very useful if you are trying to reason your way backwards from your conclusion. Exactly. Right. Yep. Now, one of the critiques levied against original intent is that when something has multiple drafters, you can't really find a single intent. Right. It doesn't exist. Every person drafting it or whatever might have uh, their own intent. Or voting on it for that matter. Or voting yeah. on it, right. And this is an argument that conservatives were making at the time to promote textualism when interpreting like regular statutes, not the Constitution. Right. Um, lots of liberals uh, especially wanted to look at the intent of the legislature, right, in passing laws. And conservatives were like, well, there's no single intent, right? So that's why we need to use the text. So they sort of realize that they're being obvious hypocrites here, right? <laughs> right they're right. looking for the intent of the Constitution, but not the intent of other laws. And so they, they need something new. And that, I think, helps push them to this idea that we should be interpreting the Constitution based on how the public understood it right. at the time. Right. And the irony, of course, is that the public understanding approach suffers from the same basic problem, mm -hmm. right? There's no single public understanding of the Constitution. And 
that's the other way in which it's useful to conservatives, right? Mm -hmm. This approach allows them to cherry pick whatever old documents and information they feel like cherry picking to prove that like the quote unquote public believed one thing or another about the Constitution. Um, You know, and I want to be clear before we move on here to like the for and against, there are tons of different modes of originalist analysis to the point where like the term has sort of lost all meaning, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why we're referring to this one specific type of originalism. But like, please don't reach out and talk about (laughs) how like you're a liberal originalist or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Which by the way, I find pathetic and embarrassing. (laughs) Yeah. Rethink that. (laughs) There are some people I respect who call themselves liberal originalists, but I'm just like, come on, man. Right. (laughs) You don't have to use their word. They think they're like playing the game, but you're the one getting played. Yeah, right, right. exactly, exactly. The thing about the original public meeting that's so ridiculous to me is that like, imagine you had a time machine. The idea would be what? Literally that like the way we're going to determine the meaning of the constitution would be to like hop in a time machine and just go find some dude standing on a corner in like Boston and be like, hey, what's this mean? (laughs) This right here, like holding up a copy of the constitution and being- What do you think the fourth amendment means? Go. What the (laughs) fuck? Like even in the idealized version of it. It's very funny to think that you actually could not accomplish this even with a time machine. Right. right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) You could bring a Supreme Court case back to the founders, right? The constitutional convention and be like, here's the case- why don't you all sort of vote, hash it out and vote on it? Yes, that would be a good way to get like the original intent. But if you just went back, <laughs> if you went back in time and tried to figure out the public understanding, just taking a survey, there would like be no way to do it. Just right? walking around <laughs> Wall Street and just being like, "What about you? What do you think this means? What do you? It's so fucking stupid. It's so dumb. And the only reason it's not like transparently dumb is because it's like." drafted up, like dressed up in like academic jargon and shit, right? Right. Like, it's stupid. (laughs) Sorry. Okay. (laughs) You know, these days, that's not even like necessarily a controversial position on the right. Like a guy who's currently ascendant in the Supreme Court, Sam Alito, is sort of infamously a critic of originalism. That's right. Yeah. And he like regularly makes fun of it when they were discussing like the fourth amendment and applying gps to people's cars the cops applying gps to people's cars like scalia was trying to talk about well if a constable hit in a carriage you know back at the founding and alito said something like it was a tiny constable right alito said it it'd have to be a very tiny constable in a very large carriage in order in order to, to work in order for this metaphor to work exactly. just like thinks it's so dumb like he he does this on occasion i think peter you had mentioned another one right about video games yeah so there was a an oral argument about a case about Restrictions on violent video games in California law. And Scalia was asking a bunch of questions. And then uh, Alito jumped in and was like, what Justice Scalia wants to know is what James Madison thought about video games. (laughs) 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 But see, it's like they know. (laughs) Right. And like, you know, Scalia was like notably annoyed. (laughs) People said like did not laugh, did not enjoy it. Right, right. So, yeah, Alito's like sniping. He yeah. sniped at Scalia about this throughout their uh, tenure together. Yeah, exactly. So and, you know, I think we'll we'll talk a bit later about sort of like the post-originalist conservative 
movement, right? Right. Whether they go somewhere next and if so, where they go. Yeah. So let's talk about the arguments for originalism, which we've broken down into, you know, there's obviously more, whatever. But like, I think we broke down into really the two big ones. And the first is what I'll call a linguistics argument, sort of for lack of a better term. Essentially, the argument is when you're reading something, you are inherently trying to absorb the information that the author is providing. So isn't the best way of interpreting it to go back to when it was written and try to dig around and find out what they meant. There's this famous law review article written in the 90s by originalist professor Gary Lawson. It's called On Reading Recipes and Constitutions. Oh, God. And he tries to illustrate this claim. I learned about this in law school. I warned you both about this yes. law yeah. review article, yes, yeah. which caused me to lose my mind on a Tuesday night. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what he basically says is, imagine you found a very old fried chicken recipe and you decide to make it, right? How would you go about making it? You'd probably follow the directions as closely as possible. And if something was a little vague, you'd do some research to figure out what the author would have meant, right? That's all originalism is. Mm. And it's so fucking stupid. So first of all, I am not joking when I say that this is like a venerated law review article. Yes. Yes. Famous on the right, like among originalists, they like hold it up. This analogy has so many glaring and obvious flaws that like it's remarkable that it was ever published, let alone is considered like a useful, seminal piece of scholarship. Can he really not conceptualize the differences between a document that dictates the nature of political relations across a country and a recipe? (laughs) Like, You don't see the problems with this? Yeah. The Constitution has some straightforward. And by the way, I'm sorry for for like digging in on this and taking it seriously. (laughs) But like they take it seriously. So I'm trying to, you know. Uh So the Constitution has some straightforward aspects, right? The controversial parts that we're all arguing about are not the parts that read like a recipe. We're not arguing about whether states get two senators, right? That's pretty cut and dry. Yeah, We're arguing about the parts that are sort of broad and vague and maybe even intentionally so. It's not like, oh, here's where you add three tablespoons of free speech. Right, right, right. right. (laughs) You know, what are you supposed to do if every step of the recipe is like add this ingredient to taste, right? Because that's how our constitution reads. It's like free speech to taste, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Gun rights to taste. Mm -hmm. It's not something that reads... Like a fucking recipe. There are also degrees to which I think this analogy proves the opposite point. Like, when you have a fried chicken recipe, what's your goal in making it? Is it to replicate the original fried chicken? Or is it to make the best fried chicken you can? Right. Mm. Both of those are valid goals, right? But that's a threshold question that you need to answer that this analogy skips right over. Mm -hmm. If your goal is just replicating the original recipe, then sure. Uh, You do your originalism, you know, Mm -hmm. but if your goal is to make good food or good government, if I'm using the analogy, (laughs) whoa, you might deviate, right? (laughs) You might see something that you don't like, uh, something you know is wrong, something that's outdated and make changes and substitutions and deviations of all sorts, right? If the fried chicken recipe is like, leave all the feathers on. Uh, you'd be like, no, we learned about taking those out uh, back in the day. Exactly. Grind the beak into a paste and (laughs) do it like a shot. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Grandma. I'm going to pass. Yeah. (laughs) 
so like yeah, even in in a in the world of these like favorable analogies that they've created for themselves, their framework doesn't really make sense. You know, there's a lot more you can say about this sort of linguistic argument, but I just don't really find it compelling. I think that it assumes its conclusion, right? Mm-hmm. They're sort of saying this is how you read stuff, right? And I think the quick response to that is no, no. it's really not how anyone reads anything. Yeah. Right, right. Even recipes. <laughs> exactly. Even recipes. Exactly. Yeah. I like garlic, so I'm doubling the garlic. <laughs> like, that's, <laughs> right. Fuck yeah. So the next big argument for originalism in support of originalism is, and I think a simpler idea than what Peter just described in terms of the linguistic argument, is this argument that originalism eliminates judicial discretion. So a point that conservatives harp on a lot is that judges are not policymakers, right? The Constitution does not say that judges make the law, legislators make the law, and then judges interpret what the law is, what the law means. So in arguing for originalism and originalist interpretation of the Constitution, you eliminate, for originalists, you eliminate judicial discretion to read in their own biases, their own policy preferences, any sort of personal discretion that a judge might read into a law. You do away with that with originalism because you're only deriving that original public meaning or the original public intent, what have you, rather than reading in what the judge interprets a law to mean by adding their own interpretation of it. Well, at the time, they were all they were basically making the claim that, you know, the liberal activist judges were running wild Mm. in the 60s and 70s. Right. And how are they running wild? Well, because they were just instituting their own preferences. So if everyone's using originalism. Right. They liked abortion. So they're reading in the right to an abortion into the Constitution. Right. And it's important to explicate what those preferences were. And those preferences were like black people are equal human beings and citizens. Women are equal human beings and equal citizens. Criminal defendants have rights. Yep. Yeah, that's the stuff. That's the yeah. stuff. We, yeah. we have to desegregate our public education. Yeah. Those judicial preferences run amok. Right. <laughs> right. right. It does not eliminate judicial discretion. Mm-mm. No. Now for the part of the episode where we defeat originalism with facts and logic, <laughs> which is the point of our podcast, of course. <laughs> I think the main argument you hear against originalism is that the Constitution was written by slave-owning assholes who should not be taken seriously. Right. And if I could intellectualize that argument a bit, I'd say, like, if you believe in democratic governance, you believe that legitimate government requires the consent of the governed in some form. And the framers simply did not have anything like that. They did not have anything like democratic legitimacy. They were near exclusively comprised of a single demographic, wealthy, white, highly educated males. That group represented a very small percentage of the country at the time of the founding. And in that regard was illegitimate. They did not meet the criteria that we now accept as necessary to rule over someone else. It's that group lacking in legitimate authority that drafts and passes the Constitution. Put another way. The originalist project is not simply mistaken, but is also in the literal sense illegitimate. It is trying to manifest a vision of the Constitution that was propounded by illegitimate rulers. On the flip side of that, 
Living constitutionalism, this idea that the Constitution can evolve with the times, is a way of salvaging the Constitution's democratic legitimacy. It allows our interpretation of the Constitution to reflect the values of the society it governs. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think the the sort of stupid conservative gotcha answer to that would be like, well, you can always just amend the Constitution. But that is, I mean, I think we all live in the real world where amending the Constitution <laughs> is phenomenally difficult right. and is an absurd requirement to expect it's basically asking each generation to not just amend, but like renew the constitution, right. like anew, like rethink it, rethink every provision and pass a bunch of amendments every 20 years. And that's just. And the amendment process that's proposed in the constitution is incredibly onerous to the point where itself, I mean, it is sort of detached from what I would call democratic rule. Right. right? Yeah. Right. It requires essentially a supermajority of the country. Right. Um, and, you know, more than that, a supermajority at like multiple different levels of government. Right. Several states need to ratify it, a supermajority of states and majorities within those states. It's the layers yeah. of, yeah. And, you know, the constitutional amendment process does not resolve the concern of the Constitution's legitimacy because the rules of the constitutional amendment process are themselves not legitimate, just like the rest of the Constitution. That's right. Right. Yeah. So like these incredibly burdensome uh, requirements for amending the Constitution, you know, they were propounded by the same illegitimate group of freaks in 1789. And the burdens are real, right? It's not like you just need a majority or even a slight majority to do this, right? You need like super majorities at several levels. It's, yes. it's something beyond democratic legitimacy. That's required to amend the Constitution. Right. The amendment process is within the illegitimate Constitution, right? So mm -hmm. it doesn't solve the problem. It's just another form of the same problem. Yeah. The Constitution has serious legitimacy problems and relying on the original understanding and things that were going on in the 1850s share those problems. But that's not the beginning or the end of it. There's also the issue that originalism does not provide solid answers. Yes. But I think there's good evidence that the founders themselves, whether or not you think them legitimate, like envisioned a living constitution that would be interpreted anew by every new generation and that le right. yeah. left language right. intentionally vague and included language that is like clearly says, you know, like the rights enumerated are not exhaustive, right? Like the people retain rights not listed here, right? Mm -hmm. Right. They had an expansive view, an expansive idea of liberty and the liberty protected by the Constitution. And it's one that isn't really compatible, I think, with this approach. Mm -hmm. There's also the problem of indeterminacy, which we alluded to earlier, which is that this doesn't reliably give you answers, right? We talked about textualism, which is the way conservatives approach reading modern statutes. And even there, even when you're talking about stuff that was passed like three years ago, <laughs> even amongst like conservatives, you can't get consensus on what certain language means, right. right? Let alone between conservatives and liberals, let alone between the random person on the street who you'd show this statute to and do your little demographic sampling exercise to find out what the general Joe public thinks the law means to find the plain meaning of the statute. And, and so the idea that you could do this 
But for language that's 200 years old and some like imagined Joe Q public from 1840 or whatever is preposterous. It is. It's absolutely preposterous. It is sort of like the like the most generous reading of it is it's that sort of Dunning-Kruger idea that people who don't really understand linguistics and and history vastly overestimating their ability to do linguistics and history. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. Like that would be the generous reading. Like the less generous reading is that they know they're fucking lying hacks, right? Right. But the result of this is that, of course, this like obscures what's actually going on, right? All the ideology at play, all the politics at play um, are being hidden underneath this like pseudo academic bullshit from this like fake history from these uh, clowns who don't know what they're doing. Right. There's a difference between saying like when the original meaning is clear, we should rely on it Mm -hmm. and making the claim that the original meaning is actually clear when it's not. Right. right? Right. And most of originalism is the latter. Like when the Constitution says the president has to be 35 or older, there's no like living constitutionalist versus originalist argument about that. Right. right? All of the fights are about the vague parts of the Constitution. Right. What's the scope of the free speech clause? What's an unreasonable search? What's cruel and unusual punishment? What's the liberty protected by the due process clause? Right. What's what's that mean? Right. 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 The entire originalist project is based on the idea that like you can get clear answers to those questions and, and like you cannot you can't you cannot mm-hmm. you absolutely can't and so going back to what re was saying earlier of course that means at the end of the day what's making these decisions is the judge's values and that is discretion that's right, right? we're not eliminating right. judicial discretion we are just relocating judicial discretion, I guess, is, is one way to think about it. Yeah. We haven't eliminated it at all. We've just repackaged it. Right. That's right. You know, they want you to assume that originalism has solved the problem of judges implementing their own policy preferences when all it's done is provided judges with like intellectual cover right. for their policy preferences. That's right. Right. It also sort of doesn't reckon with like how different the world is now, right? Like right. the government has been transformed over the last 150 years, particularly during the New Deal. The administrative state, like you learn about it in law school now as like the fourth branch of government, it has its own sort of extensive jurisprudence around it. It has both like lawmaking and law enforcing and even adjudicating functions. And it's just something that like... (laughs) The the founders have nothing to say about, right? This is a modern invention, right? This is an invention of the modern American government that has been blessed by uh, generations of politicians and judges and lawyers, and but is a uniquely 20th and 21st century thing, right? The original meaning of the Constitution is just like doesn't contemplate it in any meaningful sense. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, then you have all the ways in which like the world has changed, not just how the government functions, but like the population mm. of the United States. Yeah. At the time of the Constitution being passed was three point nine million people. Mm-hmm. That's like lower Manhattan. That's about half of the Dallas Fort Worth area. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. 
There is a degree to which the material world has changed so considerably that to try to apply the same rules is genuinely dense, like just just dumb guy shit. And we I don't feel like we need to like dodge that. Yes. Yeah. Like look at the Second Amendment, right? The Second Amendment protects the right to bear arms. Now, what did arms mean in 1789, right? Most common military weapons are muskets that fire like a couple of inaccurate pellets every minute. But even thinking more broadly than that, what was like the most powerful weapon in the world in 1789? Just like right. just like a large cannon of some sort. Yeah. What's the most powerful weapon in the world now? Literally man-made horrors beyond our comprehension. Right. 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 Like there's this assumption among most people that arms in the Constitution means what we think it means now, right? But the arms we have now and the arms we had back then are extremely different. Right. If you gave the three of us some AR-15s and ammo, we could fully wipe out the Continental Army. Absolutely John Wick those motherfuckers, (laughs) right? You can, like, credibly argue that the originalist interpretation of the Second Amendment would not cover modern guns because they're just so different from the guns of the time that they simply are not what the Second Amendment is talking about, right? That's right. But I'm not really trying to like make a case for one interpretation or the other. The point is that there are ways in which the world is so materially different that portions of the Constitution start to lose meaning. And any effort at deciphering an original intent or original understanding becomes just like a futile endeavor. Yeah. The next amendment after the Second Amendment is about quartering troops in your home for example (laughs) yeah you say it doesn't matter michael till fema comes along (laughs) um that is a good transition actually into another really big argument against originalism which is selective application of originalism right Mm -hmm. there are various areas of the law where you don't see originalism being applied because it's obvious that it would be too unpalatable, right? Or that originalism would actually end up with results that not just like the broader public would like, but even conservatives wouldn't like, okay? So one example, really big example, there have been lots and lots of additional like supplemental writings about this. Brown versus Board of Education, easily probably the most famous Supreme Court decision in American history is Brown v. Board. It is lauded as the case that solidified America's idea of itself as a place of equality of all people, right? And of course, the holding of Brown versus Board is that public schools could not be segregated anymore on racial lines. So Mm. yeah, Brown versus Board is clearly not an originalist opinion. If you went back and the drafters of the 14th Amendment, what they thought they were doing. Sure, they thought they were setting up equal protection of the laws, but they also clearly did not think that they were ending school segregation, right? Now, Scalia himself, some originalists have sort of shoehorned an originalist interpretation into Brown versus Board so that they can make the two consistent with one another. And so Scalia said that, yes, the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause means that the denial of equal protection is unconstitutional. And the question of what is a denial of equal protection should be answered, quote, on the basis of the time-dated meaning of equal protection in 1868. Mm -hmm. Clearly, though, 
that doesn't give you the holding in Brown versus Board that desegregated public schools, even though Scalia is saying that. Yeah, I mean, this is a long project of the originalist community is like trying to make Brown v. Board align. Yes. Yes. With, <laughs> with originalism. Because it fucking just clearly doesn't. It was 1868 when the uh, Equal Protection Clause was passed. If you want to tell me, you know, that the public understanding (laughs) of that clause was that schools could not be segregated anymore. I mean, you're just out of your fucking Come on. You're just, you're like, have some respect for yourself. You know, it's (laughs) like you don't have to pretend. And there are also some areas where originalists just seem to like completely abandon their philosophy. Yeah. What's the first word of the First Amendment of the Constitution? Congress. That's right. Wow. Uh, (laughs) The First Amendment reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, et cetera, et cetera. Congress, the first Hmm. word there. So... Does the First Amendment apply only to Congress? Can the other branches of government violate your free speech? Uh, No, no. Uh, Every justice on the Supreme Court agrees that we should apply the First Amendment to all branches of government, not just Congress, despite the very clear wording of the First Amendment. If you showed us the sentence, Congress shall not make any law to anyone at any point in time in history and ask them what that meant, they would tell you it's a restraint on Congress. Right. Not a restraint on the federal government. <laughs> like that's, that's not right. a restraint on the president like, or the courts. It's not about them. That's it. Yeah. Now, if you're like us and believe in a living and reasonably flexible constitution, you have an explanation for this. The explanation is that reading the amendment literally, in light of the way that modern government functions, would essentially dispose of your First Amendment rights. They would be written out of existence. If you're an originalist, though, you don't really have a coherent explanation. The intent and meaning of the amendment is clear. It applies only to Congress. A couple of originalist scholars have accepted this. They're they're like, yeah, okay, you know, (laughs) there's no way around this. It's what the amendment says. But it's an extremely unpopular position, even among the like so-called principled originalists like Scalia and Thomas. Another example is incorporation. As we've mentioned before on the pod, the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments of the Constitution, they originally only applied to the federal government. States could violate those rights at will. About 100 years ago, the Supreme Court started applying the Bill of Rights to the states on the basis that the 14th Amendment says that states cannot deprive their citizens of life, liberty, or property without due process, right? And so, you know, the court was saying, well, that means that states can't deprive citizens of their rights under the Bill of Rights, right? Now, some originalists reject this argument, and they say that the Bill of Rights should be applied to the states because of the 14th Amendment Privileges and Immunities Clause, which says that states cannot deny citizens the privileges and immunities of citizenship, Similar outcome, different reasoning. Either way, the application of the Bill of Rights to the states has been an incredibly positive development for the law because it has taken the very reasonable step of protecting people against states. Without it, we would be subject to potentially tyrannical state governments. But let's be honest with ourselves. Like, this was judicial activism, right? right? 
If the drafters of the 14th Amendment wanted it to mean that every amendment applied to the states, they could have easily said that outright. And in fact, that would have flipped the constitutional order somewhat on its head. So it would be the kind of thing that you'd probably want to be specific about, right? Right. Maybe that's why it took the Supreme Court 50 years after the the passage of the 14th Amendment to even think about doing this. Right. A citizen in 1868 would not look at that amendment and think, well, yeah, the Bill of Rights applies to the state governments now. (laughs) Right. There's just no fucking way you can say that. Yeah. And I think deep down, every originalist knows this, right? And they've created various incoherent theories to try to make it work because they know it would be completely politically unpalatable to be intellectually honest about it. And this is, again, one of those things where I went into this thinking maybe they've got something to explain the application of the Bill of Rights to the states that I just have never really thought of before. Mm-hmm. No, no. Nothing. From what I can tell, there are a bunch of originalist scholars trying to do this, trying to like square this circle, and then a bunch of others that have just given up and been, been like, well, it applies to the states. Let's uh, let's move yeah. on. Let's go fuck with gay people and uh, and limit voting rights and all the stuff that we really want to do. <laughs> and like, this is just like the tip of the iceberg, right? There are like all these areas of law that are just like incredibly fundamental to our modern jurisprudence, to our modern system of government. And that there are is really just no originalist case for. Mm-hmm. And they just sort of ignore it, you know? Yeah. They they ignore it. There's a whole fucking cottage industry of these professors who put out papers like, here's how we get Brown v. Board to be originalist. Here's how incorporation can be originalist. Here's how the First Amendment can be originalist. And they're all trash. They're all fucking <laughs> awful. If there's a good one, I haven't found it. And I read like 50. I saw this article by Jack Balkan that mentions that originalism isn't used in other countries, right? It's not a popular mode of constitutional interpretation. And there are countries across the world right now without originalism, you know, not in constitutional crisis or anything like that, right? Government and the judiciary work without originalism as the primary mode of constitutional interpretation. And another point we wanted to make, I think, about originalism is there's something unique about how originalism feeds into the idealization and sort of glamorizing of America's founding, right? There's something where it holds up this constitutional process, this founding process that the founding fathers went through in creating and drafting this document. You know, it holds it up as something that should be replicated, right? That we should be taking important lessons from and making sure that that's the lens through which we interpret the Constitution. And I just think that plays into sort of an American exceptionalism about specifically our founding and the perfection of the creation of the country. Yeah. We must always live in awe of these ruffled, flouncy founding fathers. (laughs) So I want to like zoom out for a sec. I think there's, at least for me, this is sort of like an organic going through Mike's thought process here uh, about how I think about things and how I've sort of evolved. Okay. But there's like this background idea. I think that's very key to like the American mythology Mm -hmm which is that like the arc of the universe bends towards justice. That progress sometimes is slow, but it moves inexorably forward, right? Things get better, rights expand, and we are like moving towards a fairer and freer society. 
And, and I think that's an assumption that's like very ingrained in a lot of people's heads. It certainly wasn't mine for a long time. And I think it's wrong. Um, I think it's important to understand that there are long stretches in American history where very little happened. Then there are some brief periods of like a aggressive expansion of rights, like the period following the Civil War or the Civil Rights Movement in the New Deal. And then those have been followed by like long sort of revanchist reactionary periods of trying to claw that all back, trying to, you know, reestablish the status quo ante uh, before society was changed up. Um, And there are periods of reaction you know, entire lives, entire generations lived in. These periods don't just happen organically, right? They don't just appear. They are powerful people, business, politicians, lawyers, judges, academics, paramilitary organizations in coalition, working very dedicated constantly for decades to make this happen. And when you realize that, it's you start to see that we are living in one of those periods, right? Mm-hmm. That we have been my entire life. That starting in the 80s, I was born in the early 80s, we were transitioning away from, we were in a brief era of rights expansion and we were already transitioning away from that, right? Like progress was decelerating in the 80s, if not starting to turn around under Ronald Reagan. And so, yeah, there were big business. There's an alliance of big business and politicians and yes, academics who create a lot of the intellectual foundation for these reactionary moments. And that's the context in which you need to understand originalism and what it is, uh, where it comes from, right? It didn't just appear out of the ether, right? Like right around this same time, you had supply side economics, becoming popular. That was an academic discipline championed, I think, most famously by Arthur Laffer that said that Mm -hmm. taxes were so high that you could cut them and generate more revenue because cutting taxes would create a burst of economic activity, expand the tax base, and increase tax revenue. This was a fucking laughably stupid idea at the time. It is proven. Laughably stupid, am I right? (laughs) It has been highly discredited. It led to decades of deficit spending and huge debt, right? You also have Charles Murray and the bell curve and others along his ilk who argued that IQ and other traits are heritable and genetic And actually, the data shows that black people are just genetically inferior. Mm. They are dumber and more violent. And this wasn't an honest reading of the data. It has been highly discredited by sociologists and and people who study heritability of genetic traits and, and all that stuff, people who study IQ. But, you know, just like Laffer and supply side economics, this was done in the service of an agenda. Right? right. He wanted to eliminate the welfare state. He thought public education and welfare were pointless, literally, because you're trying to help people, but the cause of their problems is themselves and their genetic inferiority. And supply side economics was the goal was to just enrich big business, right? These are agenda driven academic disciplines that have been discredited. And that's what originalism is. 
That's what Antonin Scalia is. That's what Robert Bork is. That's who they are. They are Arthur Laffer and they are Charles Murray and they are just like these other hacks. The only difference is for some reason, liberal academics, instead of, you know, deriding them as they should be, like fate them, right? They treat them like they are like titans, intellectual titans and not partisan hacks trying to justify the elimination of rights for, you know, women and minorities Mm -hmm. and and the not well off in this country. But that's what it is. That's what it's always been, right? We talked about Edwin Meese at the start and how he was like a big part of popularizing this in the 80s, you know, and in 2000, he did an interview when he talked about how like the failure to overturn Roe v. Wade was like the biggest, you know, shortcoming of the Reagan legal agenda, right? This is this is what originalism is. It was in the service of an agenda that included overturning Roe v. Wade. It included gutting the Voting Rights Act. All the things they're doing now that they are right. finally achieving. Right. That's what it is. It's not some dude who went into like astrophysics or whatever, theoretic physics, because he thought it was interesting and is trying to like square quantum mechanics and, you know, general relativity, right? And just like happens to come up with string theory or whatever. These are people with beliefs, right? right? Robert Bork in the 70s wasn't just like, whoa, here's an interesting idea I had. Maybe I should, you know, follow this thread. Robert Bork was upset about the sexual revolution. He was upset about the emancipation of women from traditional gender roles. He was upset about the civil rights movement and desegregation. He was upset about the New Deal and the redistribution of wealth, right? And that is the problem he's trying to solve when he sits down and starts talking about original understanding and founder's intent and shit, right? That's what originalism is. It's solving the problem of American progress. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so fucking intellectually stupid and hollow because it's backfilling a reactionary agenda. Go off, King. Yeah, man. <laughs> We've been saying forever that these sort of conservative legal theories are just a bad faith enterprise through and through, right? Reactionary lawyers didn't have some fucking divine revelation about how to interpret law in 1975. Right. <laughs> you know, right. It, it, it spawned out of political utility. Right. Right. They needed a framework to use so that they could claim that they were doing constitutional interpretation correctly while liberals were doing judicial activism. Right. They were opposed to the rapid development of, of civil civil rights and liberties for women and minorities, but they needed a basis for arguing that those rights and liberties were like incorrectly granted without looking too bigoted, right? Exactly. Because we had sort of reached a point in history where that was not compelling, where just being like, well, those people are inferior was no longer as compelling as it once was. Mm-hmm. So they develop a theory, right? You can read the scholarship and watch it grow from like a little seed in conservative law review articles to a fully fleshed out theory that the Reagan administration is saying out loud. And not only is the concept of originalism not particularly coherent and like inconsistently applied and too abstract to have any real value. It is, at bottom, a pretext to reach reactionary outcomes. That's right. That's right. I don't know how you can look at the history of it and not reach that conclusion. This is why we think liberal originalists are getting played, right? Yeah. There's no winning at their game because they're not playing it in good faith. Yeah. I mean, and there's something to be said for how much liberals bit on this shit. (laughs) It's 
mm-hmm. interesting the extent to which the right succeeded just by having a theory that was sort of like internally consistent in a way, even if it didn't make any fucking sense, mm-hmm. right? It had an internal logic that liberals who were sort of just applying their values and norms more broadly didn't really have. Now, there's no functional difference between applying your values and norms and what the conservatives are doing, which was creating a pretext to apply their values and norms. But I think that that pretext was very appealing to people. Right. And I guess we should talk about what's next. Is originalism here to stay? And I think the reason that we'd ask that question is because we're making this argument that it's pretextual. Conservatives are using it to get what they want. But in a lot of ways, they now have what they want. They have the courts. They have the Supreme Court especially. So do they need the pretext? It's a good question. On one hand, you have someone like Adrian Vermeule, law professor and Harvard pervert who (laughs) is sort of a, you know, theocratic freak, yes. uh, literally believes in like, you know, authoritarian theocracy yeah. and wants to promote what he calls common good constitutionalism, which is just conservatism, but you're doing the constitution, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he's just a, a right wing legal realist. Yeah. And his pitch to other conservatives has very explicitly been that was all quite useful right. <laughs> to get us to where we are now. But if we want to take this country to where we really want to take this country, we need to throw out that pretext and move forward and admit that what we're doing is trying to build a country that is predicated on Christianity, the subjugation of women, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't think that works in the near term. But as more liberals start to identify the conservative frameworks for what they are, I do sort of see the conservative legal movement throwing off the pretense a little bit. Mm -hmm. Agreed. It's been very effective at beating back liberal interpretations of the Constitution. But with so much of that work done, you could make the argument that originalism has accomplished everything they needed it for and therefore is going to start to lose utility for them, right? Originalism is a veneer. It's an excuse to do things that conservatives want to do. But now that they have total control over the court and no one's standing in their way, like, who needs an excuse, right? Right. That's right. (sighs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Look, we've got two and a half solid years before the entire country falls apart and turns to fascism, so no need to get pessimistic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Next week... F.E.C. V. Raphael Edward Cruz. Mm. Ted Cruz. (laughs) Case about whether bribery is okay. And uh, spoiler alert. Yeah. It's fine. (laughs) 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 Thanks so much for subscribing to our Patreon. We appreciate all of your support. As always, follow us on Twitter at 54pod. Take care of yourselves. Donate to abortion funds. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Five to Four is presented by Prologue Projects. Rachel Ward is our producer. Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons provide editorial support. Our production manager is Persia Verlin, and our assistant producer is Arlene Arevalo. 
Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. Wait, Peter, you called Vermeule a Harvard pervert. Do we think pervert is, like, defamatory or anything? Not in conjunction with Harvard. Right? <laughs> he's, an, he's an academic pervert. One, right. one who perverts ideas. He's an integralist, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, he is one of the great freaks, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I don't think it's defamatory. I don't think so either. It's not specific enough. He's a public figure. Yeah. Pervert can mean all sorts of shit. And you don't say he's a pervert. You say he's a Harvard pervert. Yeah. It's not like someone who goes around molesting people at Harvard or something. Like, right. that's not the implication. No one would no. Th- think that. If you believe that the word pervert can only be used to describe people who engage in, like, sexual misconduct, then I believe that you're incorrect. I believe the definition is broader, and right. that's how I'm using it. Yeah. Look at a dictionary. We throw around things like theocratic freak and stuff, and people may think we're using them loosely. But like he has said that he thinks Catholics should jump to the head of the line in immigration because that is, and I quote, will work towards the eventual formation of the empire of Our Lady Guadalupe and ultimately the world government required by natural law. Okay. Yeah. If you use the phrase, the empire of my Lady Guadalupe, (laughs) I'm allowed to call you a Harvard pervert. Absolutely. That's just just the law. (laughs) Boom, lawyered. (laughs) Bam, we just undefamed Adrian Vermeule. 